John 8 through 12. You can find this in page 1059 in your pew Bibles. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of the life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness to, of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If I had known me, if you had known me, you have known you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him for his, hours, for his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer, would you? Heavenly Father, we are here for a variety of different reasons, but we trust it is your guiding Holy Spirit that has brought us here, no matter what occasion might be. And so, God, we pray that you would now uh, speak to us, that you would address us through your life-giving word. Whatever it is that we might need to know, to hear, whether it's a word of comfort, a word of encouragement, a word of challenge, speak to us, God. We trust that you are here, the living word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm reading a book right now um, called Tattoos on the Heart. It's a fabulous, fascinating book by uh, a Catholic priest named Father Greg Boyle. And he's a priest who's serving in Los Angeles. And he's serving a parish that has the highest concentration of gang activity in the world. And death is a constant in Father Boyle's life. He says, I have eight gangs in my parish and they are all at war with one another. And he says, so I bury a lot of kids. He says, I bury the kids that I love and I love the kids that have killed the kids I bury. He serves in what you might call a very dark place. And after years of trying to figure out how to fight and how to battle this darkness, he, he's come to a, a simple but fairly remarkable understanding. He, he figures, you know, you could attribute this whole cycle of violence that he sees on a daily basis to, you know, all this hatred, all this violence to environmental factors, racial factors, social factors. He says, sure, all those are part of it. They're contributing factors, but at root... At root, what is going on, he says this darkness is all about what he says, quote, a lethal absence of hope. A lethal absence of hope. He says this, youths who are stuck in a place of despair and they cannot 
imagine a future for themselves. They are stuck in the dark without a ray of light to guide them. But you don't have to be in an L.A. gang to know about darkness. A lot of us here, every one of us here, knows about what that is like because we've experienced it. And you don't need to be in an L.A. gang to know how badly we need light from the outside, from some external source to come and bring our world some hope. There's a lot of darkness in our world, isn't there? And sometimes it just envelops your life. And when that happens, the temptation is for us to, to begin to adjust our life to the dark, to adapt ourselves to those dark conditions. And it feels like that's what's going on in our culture. The rise of, of depression and anxiety disorders are widespread and profoundly concerning. Just this past week, I spoke with a, a young person who was freaking out because they were on social media with another friend who confessed that they were cutting. And this person was like, I don't, I don't know how to respond to this. This experience at such a tender age of such profound darkness. Our culture feels really fixated on despair and alienation. Even Just look at popular culture and you see that. We see popular, some of the most popular films and shows these days are about end-of-the-world disasters, about dystopias, about zombie apocalypse and evasions. Or think about how many TV dramas right now um, are marked not by heroes, but by anti-heroes. Characters you don't want to lead you. And you get the sense that we're adjusting ourselves to the darkness around us. We're getting used to living with a lethal absence of hope. In the words of the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 8, the people are distressed and roam the land. They look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. But when there's darkness... The goal is not to get used to the darkness, to make sense of the darkness. The goal is not to figure out who to blame for the darkness. The goal is to find some light and to live in the light. And this Advent season, we've been focusing in on how the Bible speaks about, uses this image of light in darkness, and it's a recognition of things that this world can be a dark place. Christmas is, you know... Its popular understanding is it's a very sentimental holiday, you know, with all sorts of holly jolly stuff, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, all that sort of stuff. It is not sentimental at all. It is just blunt. It says this world is a dark place. It needs rescue. You are in a dark place and you need rescue. And Christmas offers us the hope that there is that rescue. That even though it, it recognizes the darkness in this world, it recognizes we can't save ourselves, that we're not progressing, that we keep on killing and hurting and taking advantage of, nonetheless, Christmas also tells us there is hope. There is a light in the darkness. And again, following that Hebrew prophet Isaiah, he says, on those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. There is hope, and there is light, and that light is Jesus Christ. Throughout the biblical story, the image uh, for God that gets used throughout for God and his activities in the world is light. From the very first pages to the very last pages of the Bible, in the opening pages of Scripture, we read 
that God speaks the universe into being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and God creates with words. And the very first words God speaks are, let there be light. And God speaks, and there is an explosion of light that creates and fashions the known universe. God speaks light, and when he speaks, the light shoves out the darkness and makes room for beauty and for life. But tragically, humans chose darkness. And so we fell into sin and the darkness, and a shadow got cast over the earth, over every piece of life, and people stumbled in the darkness. But God would not. He could not allow that to remain. He could not watch his, his beloved creation become so lost in darkness, especially a darkness of their own making. And so God entered the darkness, which brings us to Christmas, to the manger, where that creative word of God that spoke the universe into being, that creative word of God has now become flesh, has now become human and entered history and dwells among us. And in the Gospel of John, it is a retelling of the story of the world, but now finding in Jesus the interpretive key, the critical understanding for making sense of the world. And so John uses the very first words of Genesis all over again, in the beginning, he says. But now was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus, using that image of Word. This is how John begins the story of Jesus Christ, not with a nativity narrative, not with a little manger scene, but identifying Jesus as the, the creative Word of God that said, let there be light, and there was light. And then John continues and talks about this Word, this light-giving, life-giving Word, and says, in him was light and life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about that. Whenever we think of a manger scene, it makes an incredible claim, doesn't it? Christmas makes this stunning, remarkable claim. Whenever we think about Christmas, we're not saying that this baby born in Bethlehem, this Jesus Christ, was a, was a good moral teacher to show you a better way to live. That's not what Christianity is saying, nor are we saying that, you know, this is, this is a lovely sentimental moment that can distract you for just a time from the darkness of the world around you. Christianity says that in Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Son, who was with the Father and the Spirit at creation of the world, shoving the darkness aside, bringing light, he, this Jesus, is the source of light in your life, in this world, he is the light that brings creative hope into our very dark moments. And in this passage we read this morning, we had read, Jesus makes that, that claim very explicit, very plain, very in your face. Jesus presents himself as the light of the world, boldly proclaiming, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, that's quite a claim. And, of course, that claim is contested right away. The rest of the passage is about all these religious leaders who challenge Jesus. And Jesus, you know, he's upending their tidy religious systems, and so there are questions, there's challenges, there's calls for Jesus to validate his testimony. I'm not going to focus on that this morning. I want to focus simply on the claims, the promise of Jesus as the light of the world. 
Because this Jesus, the light of the world, is the healing that a dark world needs. The healing from people who are suffering from a lethal absence of hope. It's interesting, Jesus speaks these words, this bold claim, in a very specific context. And this is one of those times where if you catch sight of a little of the the context going around, it sheds even more light on the passage. We know from the previous chapter in John that Jesus and his disciples are at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, sometimes called the Feast of Booths. I think the Jewish uh, term for it is uh, the Feast of Sukkoth. Um, And it was one of the favorite festivals of the Israelite people because it was eight days of feasting. So, you know, they brought their sacrifices to the altar and it was just, it was like eight day barbecue and they would eat their sacrifices this time. It was one of those. So it was a fabulous time of feasting and dancing and drinking and just enjoying the goodness of this feast. It it came around October, so it was sort of end of the harvest season, but it was one of the favorites of people. And the purpose of this feast was to celebrate, to remember the exodus. Those 40 years when Israel was in the desert, in the wilderness, and God guided the Hebrew people through that desert from bondage in Egypt to freedom. Um, to, in the promised land. And one of the highlights of the Feast of Tabernacles was the lighting ceremony. They lit these four massive candelabras, 75 feet high, these things were. They were lit in the temple, um, and, and they lit up the whole temple area and, and sort of some of the adjoining pieces or neighborhoods of Jerusalem. So some of the rabbis said all of Jerusalem was, was glowing with the light. The whole area was, was just bathed in this beautiful warm light of these torches that were burning. And these torches, of course, symbolized the, the pillar of fire that the Israelites had to guide them through the desert. They had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of uh, fire by night. And that was a way that God led the people through the wilderness. There were no maps, no GPS that people had, so God guided his people with this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. It it led them out of slavery. It guided them through all the dangers in the wilderness. It guarded them, and it brought them to this new reality, the promised land. And then throughout the week in this... um, In this festival, as the people danced and sang songs of joy, they would read and recite scriptures that celebrated God as light. So, for instance, Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? Or Psalm 43, verse 3, Send me your light and your faithful care, let them lead me. Isaiah 2, verse 5, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Or Isaiah 60, verse 1, where it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. In that same chapter, Isaiah 60, verse 19, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of your moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And so for seven nights, they celebrated God is light. But then on the final evening of the feast, the candelabras were extinguished creating in people this sense of expectation, this sense of hope, looking forward to next year when those candelabras would be lit again and all of the temple would be bathed in the glory of that light. And it's at that moment when those candelabras are extinguished, after a week of beautiful illumination with with now the growing darkness over the whole area where Jesus enters in and says, I 
and the light of the world. You've seen the lights of the temple pierce the darkness for the last seven nights, but I am the light that pierces the darkness every night, every day, illuminating the world. If you follow me, you will have the light of life, not just for seven days, but for all your life. We have, for the past seven days, remembered the pillar of fire that led the way, guiding us through the desert. Follow me, and you will have light for all of your life. Walk in my light. Jesus is claiming something for himself of cosmic significance. Did you notice that? He's saying, I'm not just light of the Jewish people. I'm not just light for some Middle Eastern region. I am light of the world for all people, for all times, for your life. And against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, again, and all the guidance that God did through the pillar of fire, Jesus is saying, listen, I am the one who will lead you out of slavery into freedom. I am the one who will guard and protect you from danger. I am the one who will lead you into a whole new reality. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Jesus, we find the, the light that reveals all the obstacles that cause us to stumble. We have a light that reveals the path to life. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, you will never walk in darkness. That's a remarkable promise. Meaning your life will be changed. Light does that, doesn't it? It changes us. Light not only warms, it not only illuminates, but it, it, it literally physically changes us. Think of the physical reality of what light does. We know this. Think of the process of photosynthesis, the power of sunlight to change things. The energy of light gets converted into chemical energy. Um, so green plants and other organisms use the energy of light to convert carbon dioxide and water into a simple sugar or glucose, food for the plants. The plant grows because of the light. The light of Christ functions in the same way. It changes us, growing us into what we are created to be. As we receive the light of Christ into our lives, it brings life to us. One of the ways it does this, one of the ways that the light of Jesus changes us is that it forgives us. And we, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about sin because that's part of the darkness we all experience in our lives. We have dark corners and shadowed places in our hearts. And, and to put it really bluntly, I don't mean to be offensive, this might for some of you, but we're sinners. And I know we don't like to face that, but that's the fundamental reality of our hearts. That's the fundamental human problem. That, that is why radicalized fanatics drive trucks down crowded streets and sidewalks, you know, just running over people, killing them. That's why wicked men will blow themselves and all sorts of other people up, while, why people will assault women and, and kill little girls, and why greedy executives betray the trust of their stockholders it's why you and I even do some of the, the, the most desperate things in our lives. Because it's this darkness in our hearts called sin. And when the Apostle John, when he talks about sin, he describes it always as a turning away from the light of God. And the result of that 
turning towards him, John claims, is that we live in darkness. Doesn't our society feel like it's a darker place this year? You know, it's not as if last year we were basking in the light of righteous living or anything like that. But I don't know, that the evil of terrorism that we've seen spike, the racism that has shown its ugly face this year, groups like ISIS, the political polarization where people can't even talk in civil ways anymore, the sexual abuse and harassment that has come out. I mean, it feels like this dark cloud all around us And yet the place where all that darkness originates is in human hearts that are shadowed with sin. And if you cover that up, John says you're deceiving yourself. And that's only going to lead you further into darkness. But if you confess that reality, if you bring it to the light, you find the grace of Christ filling you with with forgiveness, but with a creative light Because Jesus Christ is the creative light of the world that is stronger than any sin in our lives. He is the one who can turn your life, your broken, mixed up heart into a ray of light that can shine. And oh my, how the world needs your life to shine with the light of Christ. That's what the light of Jesus does. It changes us, filling our lives with light, making us light. And as we follow Jesus... The dark places, the hidden places of our lives get, get illumined. Now that can at one moment sound good and at the next moment sound very challenging and frightening because often we don't want that light. We like our little dark corners of our life, don't we? Because we're doing stuff in the dark. Some of you are hiding that from your parents. Some of you are hiding that from your friends or from your spouse. You don't want your, them to see that. We're hiding stuff from ourselves. And you're going to have to sit down and you're going to have to think about that and recognize any areas of denial about that. But, but I want you to know that that darkness we experience here is very temporary. Because Jesus Christ, in his piercing light, sees everything. And someday the light is going to rise. The sun will come up. The Bible keeps saying that over and over again, that the tendency in history, history shows this out, is that everything gets revealed by the light. Sometimes now, ultimately at the end of time, but there is a reckoning that goes on. Isn't that what we're seeing right now in our culture? There is this reckoning regarding all sorts of hidden sexual harassment of various men, and it's coming to light, and there's a reckoning. Things come out. Everything comes out. Almost all the time here, eventually everything will come out. The light, however, has the power to to change us so that we live lives of integrity, of wholeness, of holiness. Realize the light is shining and it's going to shine inevitably because Jesus is the light of the world. So don't be different in the dark than who you are in the light. Don't be different when no one's looking than when everyone might be looking at you. Don't do that. If you understand Jesus is the light, you will not be any different um, when someone is looking and when when they're not. it, It changes us to be people of integrity, of wholeness. The light 
The light also beautifies. You ever notice that about light? It, you know, it, white light, if it refracts, it refracts into this beautiful spectrum of color. Think of all the colors, which are the beautiful emanations of this one light. Jesus, the light of the world, is beautiful. And as his light shines in us, the beauty of Jesus refracts in all sorts of stunning ways. So think about that, Christians who are here. Is there anything beautiful about your life? Is there anything remarkable about how the light of Christ shines in you? When people watch you receive criticism, is it, is it done in a grace-filled way? When people watch how you treat people you work with, perhaps under you, when they watch you deal with others, when they watch you handle your money or your troubles, are, are they amazed? Are they surprised? Do they see something beautiful about you? Another way the light changes us, it makes us remarkably hopeful. As people who walk in the light, we become remarkably hopeful, even in the midst of the darkness we see and feel around us. Because one of the truths is that the sun is not up. Jesus will come fully one day. We await that. And, and just Think of what that light will show, the beauty that will show. I mean, the world right now is a beautiful place, isn't it? Just go, I mean, outside, it's this beautiful snowy area. Look at the mountains, look at the oceans, the sea. It's incredibly beautiful. But imagine how beautiful the world will be when the light of Christ fully shines out. Imagine the life that's going to blossom and come alive. When you live in the light of Christ, you become one of the most hopeful people because you realize that God is at work redeeming all things and that anything that is broken or bent or bruised, God has his target on and he intends to restore that and redeem it and make it new, to blossom with new life. We become the most hopeful people. So yes, the world can be a dark place, but friends, the light has come. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christmas teaches us so many amazing things about who God is, but the, the first thing we need to know is we need to grasp the light. It's sort of like we, before entering a room and seeing what's around, you've got to turn on the light so you can explore it. And same thing coming to Jesus, receiving the light of Jesus, and as soon as you do that... As soon as you turn to the light in Christ, you begin to live in the light, and so much gets illuminated and shown. There's a beautiful illustration of this. I'll close with this. Could you call up that image right there? Look at that beautiful light. All the great painters of the nativity, all the masterpieces of history, um, capture this truth. Uh, the background of these paintings, there's always this darkness around it. And what little light is provided in each of these paintings emanates from that manger as it reflects the faces of those who are gazing in, who are leaning into the manger. And what those artists are saying, communicating, is that our calling is, is to live in that light, to get as close to the manger as you can, to get as close to the light of Jesus as you can. And then as that light shines out, you become a reflected source of that light. It's the only way a darkened world is going to see the light. It's the only way we're going to find the path home to God. So walk in the light, and you will never walk in darkness. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you speak words and light comes alive. Thank you for the light of Jesus Christ. God, we, we want to live in that light, in its beautiful, radiant light. And we recognize that that light sometimes is challenging because it pierces a lot of dark places. But Father, today we want to say we don't want to live in darkness. And so shine your light into dark places of our lives. Even if that's hard, even if we have to face up to some challenging things about who we are, Jesus, shine your light into our lives. And maybe there's some of us here today who have never come to that place where they have turned to you as the source of light. Father, through your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would turn all hearts towards you so that the beginnings of the light of Jesus could enter into people's lives, so that it would illumine, it would create beauty and hope, create people who live as children of the light. This is what we want to be, God, because of that child, Jesus, the light of the world. In his name we pray, amen.